welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important issues in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Stalin. I'm Sarah Brightninka. So Sarah, when you go grocery shopping these days, I'm sure obviously like the rest of us, you've seen that prices have, have gone way up for so many different things. Uh, but a staple that we we always have to buy is is bread, right? So I'm curious, like, how do you buy your bread now? What sort of bread do you buy, and how much do you pay for it? Yeah, I don't buy uh, a lot of bread, but when I do, I like to make the effort to go to you know a local bakery or something like that. I'm kind of close to Kensington Market, so I'll hop down there. Uh, I think the last loaf of bread I bought was a nice multi-grain baguette. I think it was like four fifty or something like that. Is that more or less than what you pay for bread? No, I think that's about that's about right. Uh, but you know, it's hard to get bread that's even cheaper than that these days. It's it's gone up so much in price. But really when I'm looking at all the options, I have no idea what goes into any of this stuff. Like Or what makes a good loaf of bread. We have no idea. I have no idea. But fortunately we do have a guest today who does know what makes a good loaf of bread and can speak to the supply chain that goes into making that loaf of bread, uh, especially at a local level. So today on Free Lunch, we have Dawn Woodward. She's a baker and the owner of Evelyn's Crackers, an Ontario-based bakery business, which has been baking for farmers markets since 2008 with a mission to support the regional grain economy by working with other local bakers, millers, and farmers. Dawn Woodward, thank you for joining us on Free Lunch. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, guys. So just to kick us off, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your business, Evelyn's Crackers, and just give us a high-level overview of what sort of products you're selling, uh, what the scale is, where you're selling, that sort of thing. Sure. We are um, a Toronto-based business, and um, right now the business is just me because it's our slow season. Uh, I'll pick up an employee or two during our busy season during the summer. Uh, the name Evelyn's Crackers, we make crackers and we used to make a lot of crackers uh, back when my husband was also in the business. And we whole, we would wholesale those crackers to stores like Whole Foods and Pusateri's, uh, just all within Ontario, though. Uh, uh, and then the pandemic really changed a lot of things. And But the through line is we've always been uh, farmer's market-based. And so now, post-lockdown, I am strictly farmer's market, and I no longer wholesale. And the focus of our business is grains, and it's about uh, using Ontario grains and working directly with farmers outside of the commodity system, and then all the other ingredients, trying to use that same sort of very short supply chain, working directly with the producers, um, and going for things that are sustainably and ethically sourced, and making really trying to minimize any kind of exploitation of the environment or workers in the supply chain. So what was the what led to that decision during the pandemic to shift from a wholesale model to just selling through farmers markets and I guess scaling back a little bit? Uh, you know, I think the pandemic was like a little bit of like a, a big rethink for a lot of independent businesses. Um, so Ed, my husband and then business partner, he and I were just working like crazy hours to keep up with demand. Uh, we were exceptionally lucky in that the weekend before the lockdown started, I had put up an online store for our products. Um, and that was just, I mean, pure chance. 
And so then the lockdown started and then all the farmers markets were shut so our customers could order our products online. And then uh, lots of independent businesses and Whole Foods um, and Pusateries ordered a ton of crackers because suddenly people were home and shopping and, you know, like everyone was stocking up. Um, it wasn't quite the toilet paper run, but we sold a lot of crackers. It was insane. And that just sort of realized that our profit margins weren't so great and I could spend more time uh, working on things I sell directly to the consumer instead of all this time wholesaling where you take a bigger cut. So we, it just mm. got to the point where it made more sense for us to sell direct than trying to scale up the wholesale to a volume that truly made sense. Uh, and then things like packaging, uh, especially in Canada, packaging for a small company is really hard. It's very hard to find sustainable packaging or anything that's even recyclable or plant-based. And then um, the packaging costs were just insane because everything was coming through the States. So costs were doubling mm -hmm. and doubling. And, you know, that it's a handmade product with fairly expensive ingredients. So that was just killing our margin. Um, and it just wasn't, I, I just don't want to be a huge producer selling anonymously to uh, grocery stores. What are the, the costs that go into a product like the one that you're making? When you make something that is you know, in smaller batches than the typical product that you would buy at Loblaws, like a bread and cracker or something like that. How does that break down on your end in terms of what you're paying for the inputs uh, that goes sure. into the final price? Um, regardless of scale, I'm paying more for my inputs just because of the quality of ingredients and who I'm sourcing from. So because I deal with farmers here in Ontario, there's smaller farmers who don't sell into a centralized system. Um, so their grains are more expensive, like two to three to four to five times more expensive. Uh, um, I'm sourcing organic fair trade sugar, organic fair trade chocolate. So again, that's two to three to four to five times more expensive. Uh, sourcing fruit from Niagara, um, I stop sourcing dried organic fruit from California and I'm using local organic apples and cranberries from Quebec. And it's, it's just more expensive because none of these things have been centralized, right? And nor do they get the, you know, the government supports of the bigger systems. How many different suppliers would you say that you have? It varies for grains. I have three. Uh, but that has varied and changed over the 15 years we've been in business. I deal with two to three organic distributors. Um, I deal directly for my butter, which comes is organic from Quebec. I deal directly with the dairy there. I deal directly with the maple syrup producer here in Ontario, who's also organic. I deal directly with the, uh, the apiary for the Ontario honey. Um, and then, you know, I deal directly with the farmer that grows the fruit in Niagara. So it just, it kind of varies and it depends on what I'm sourcing. And then for the chocolate, I'm dealing with the cooperative that brings the chocolate in from South America. Wow. So if, if you were to kind of lay out your supply chain for us, so it's, it's you handling the relationship with all of those suppliers. And then once you've sourced those ingredients, kind of what happens next? So the ingredients are either delivered by the producer or through a, a delivery driver. Um, and then, you know, it's, it really is pretty simple. It's, it's as easy as just me making a phone call or sending an email, placing my order. 
everyone takes e-transfer or I write a check on delivery. Uh, so it's just like ordering through a bigger company. The What's taken time is developing those relationships and finding these sources, right? Like I'm not, I don't just call Cisco like everyone else does, um, right? I have to find the maple syrup person. And the odds are that that maple syrup person doesn't really have a website or isn't going to really show up in a lot of Google searches. Um, so it's things like that. And same with the farmers. These farmers, even if they have a website and you send an email to the website, they're not going to, none of them respond. So it's a lot of word of mouth, searching, going to conferences, phone calls. And then, you know, when you find your person, you really develop that relationship and stick with that person. And then you actually have to make the product, right? So that, that's yes. just like sourcing the the supplies. And then what happens next? Like, do you have a facility or something that you produce this so, stuff in? How does that work? I do. I have a commercial kitchen that I rent down in Liberty Village, which is downtown Toronto. Um, so the grain comes in unmilled. I have a small, very small tabletop mill that I do a fair amount of milling on, but then I'm able to give the grain to two other bakers that have larger size commercial mills and they mill for me. Um, so that's been fantastic, but that also requires dropping off the grain and then picking up the grain. Uh, one luckily is a one minute drive away. Um, the other one is about a 20 minute drive away. Um, and then, you know, the fruit, when the fruit comes in, I have to process it for whatever I'm using it for, whether that's freezing it, roasting it, jarring it. Um, and then, yeah, like everything else comes in sort of ready to use, right? The honey and the maple syrup and all that just come in larger size, you know, 15 liter buckets or what have you. The butter comes in 500 pounds at a time direct from the dairy. And that just goes into our, into my walk-in, which is a, a you know, literally a refrigerator you can walk into. The There's a couple of other inputs that you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on. So one was packaging. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, Because it's not something that I think about as an important part of a product, uh, but it sounds like for you as a small business owner, it actually does add a lot of costs and uh, irritation. So is there a, can you describe sort of what's going on there and how that impacts what you do? Sure. So for packaging, there's, there's two components of packaging. So like when we thought we might think about getting bigger and, and putting the crackers on more store shelves, we needed to put the crackers in a box, which means one, you have to get the box and the box has to be printed. And then the box also needs a plastic bag insert to seal the crackers, right? So that's that's now two steps to the packaging. And the plastic bag then has to be heat sealed, um, right, to lock in the crackers. And then that bag has to be put in the box, which has to be assembled. So then you're suddenly looking at a production line of that will fold the box and put the crackers in the bag and seal the bag. And that was just so beyond our our budget or just anything, any road we wanted to go down to. So we just said, okay, no, that's, that's too much. Cause suddenly you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars for a, pr- a packaging production line. So packaging can require, you can have a production line actually making the food, you know, your mixers and your dividers and your sheeters and the ovens. But then this is a whole separate production line. And then as somebody who didn't go down that road, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get, you know, cellophane 
like cellophane bags or some jars or whatever. That still means I have to find the companies, see if they'll deal with a smaller um, customer. Uh, you know, what's their minimum order? Because like I said, I, I can't bring in pallets of jars. I can't bring in pallets of bags. Um, it still requires hand labeling of the jars and the bags, you know, which is a lot of work. Um, maybe at some point I'll get some things pre-printed. Um, so it's, it's just a lot more work. And especially if you have multiple product products that need to be packaged, it gets, um, it gets a little crazy. So that ends up being, if, if you want to get into that, uh, that game, I guess, basically you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars minimum in upfront costs just to get that machine running. Yes. Or you can do a lot of things by hand. There are, you know, small businesses that, you know, get in the pallets of jars and then hand label every single jar. You know, that's a lot of work. Um, oh it doesn't you know, make sense you, off though. <laughs> right. And then you have to deal with the, the printer to get all the labels. And then you have to deal with how, you know, you have to design that label. So then you have to hire the designer or you can spend time doing it yourself. There's lots of things you can now do yourself, right? Like your own website and design your own labels, right? Like the software out there is pretty amazing. Um, but for sure, you have to design the label, make sure it meets all the packaging requirements required for your province. Um, label your container, pack your container, and then ship your container out to the store. So it's it's just, just not conducive with running a, a, a very small business. Just to stay on packaging for one more question, do you have a sense of what the percentage of the total cost of your product would have gone to packaging? Have you gone that route of like the heat sealing, the plastic bags, and then the repackaging into the into the boxes? I, I'm not really sure because that would require us to scale up to such an extent. It, you know, it would work out. I mean, larger companies do it and it works. Um, so I don't really know, but I know when our packaging tripled, it was going to be uh, about 20% of our wholesale cost, 20 to 25%, which is, wow. you know, that's ridiculous, right? So yeah, I mean, a grocery store and like all of the, and just all of, and how so much of the costs are likely going towards packaging so much of these ingredients. A lot, right? And they're not going to the producers of the ingredients or the people making the ingredients in the factory, right? You're, you're paying for a lot of other things besides the actual food, for sure. I guess the other big input that I'm curious about is energy uh, and maybe this goes back to what you were saying about how the locally supplied produce for a time was actually cheaper than what was being imported from you know California or Mexico or wherever uh, I assume energy has some something to do with that and the high energy costs that we were experiencing for a while uh, how does that impact local supply chains I guess. Who feels that the most? Is it the farmers? Uh, where does that fit in? Uh, I think the farmers. I had one farmer who raised the price of his grain because it was more expensive to come into town and now just comes into town once a month and drops uh, drops everything off at my bakery for other people to pick up at because that, that's more efficient for him. Um, so if he can consolidate all of his drop-offs to one location, make one trip a month, 
and combine that trip with other things he might have to do in town, uh, for sure. And then when I was talking to farmers at the market, um, you know, they had to be able to sell enough to justify, you know, when gas, you know, the gas price pretty much almost doubled. Um, so suddenly it was costing farmers, you know, like $300 to bring the truck and the trailer in, which, you know, on many levels is not efficient. You know, there is something to be said for, you know, larger systems uh, and efficiency. Um, so, yeah, the, these farmers just had to make sure that they could sell enough to justify it. Um, but thankfully, the market was busy enough, so it all worked out. Um, it didn't affect me. My hydro bill has gone up a bit. My gas bill has gone up a bit, but nothing, nothing too outrageous. So the, the it sounds like you've made a decision, a conscious decision to uh, do things more. I, I don't want to. How do I say this in a harder? Yes. Like, Doing all this, <laughs> um, like yes. going out and sourcing all these relationships. You're not relying on a major, you know, kitchen supplier like Cisco for your ingredients. You're finding these people at like conferences and word of mouth. Um, why did you? Why have you made that choice? Because it sort of fits into my belief system that I need to run a business that sort of relies on mutualism. Whereas it needs to benefit multiple people. Um, so I don't, like I said, in, in my, I want to avoid as much exploitation as I can. And as we know, if we, you know, if anyone is following what's going on with the farm workers in California, uh, the migrant labor here in Ontario, uh, environmental degradation from big ag, you know, just avoiding that, you're just setting yourself up for a lot more work trying to find the people who are not buying into that system. And I also think, and again, like the pandemic just sort of reaffirmed all of my beliefs. I, I don't know how to say this without making it sound kind of, you know, woo woo, but I think we're just in this huge age of anxiety and people are trying to find connection. And through my business, I'm lucky enough to have connection to all of these wonderful producers and we sort of work together as a team. And I think a lot of my customers benefit from the connection to me as a source of, you know, they know where their food is coming from. They can talk to me. Uh, like the market is actually this very intimate setting and people just have so much anxiety. It's crazy, right? Because there's so few things we can control. Um, and there's so much going on with climate change and just, so you can go to the market and you can feel like you're doing a little bit of good, right? And you can talk to the person about what, what you're buying. And I think you know, we, in our search for doing things that make us feel connected, so many people forget about food, right? Food is something we just go to the grocery store for, or we do Uber Eats, and we forget like all the people that are behind it and what it takes to grow this food. Um, so when people stop to stop and think and want to make that change, it actually adds, it can add a lot of positive benefits, right? Establishing these relationships. Um, and then, you know, again, being an Ontarian, watch, watching our premier just destroy the green belt. If we don't start supporting local farmers, especially farmers who are doing, you know, good work and working on improving the soil, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, so I think it's really essential that I support these, these farmers with these grain farms, even though they're small and, and more expensive. But like, I just feel 
one of the farmers I work with, you know, he has wetlands on his farms. He has beavers in the wetlands. Uh, you go to his farm and you're just in a whole other ecosystem, right? Like we have to support these people. Uh, so yeah. And just, and like I said, just the pandemic has sort of just made me realize that I, you know, I really need to do as much as I can and spread the message about this. It seems like the pandemic did kind of trigger a desire on behalf of so many consumers to shift towards a more, you know, sourcing their food more locally. I'd be, I'd be interested to know if you think that that's true and if that's been your experience. But I, I wonder with businesses like yours that do rely um, on so many different inputs and these in- different types of intimate relationships and and that take a long time to to build. I mean, over the past year, um, what are some of the bottlenecks that kind of come up with, you know, relying on kind of, a, you know, half a dozen uh, types of suppliers when it comes to, you know, the ingredients themselves, when it comes to packaging, when it comes to the people that, you know, you hire? Um, what has your experience been over the last year kind of running a small business and, and dealing with any bottlenecks that have have, have come up and, and where have they come up? Bottlenecks have absolutely come up. There's always been a few bottlenecks in running a small business anyway, especially when it comes to packaging, because I'm not going to order a pallet of 100,000 bags, right? I have nowhere to store that. Uh, but during the pandemic, like I said, when we were doing wholesaling crackers, suddenly packaging tripled. And so that was one of the, dis- that was a really big decision to end the crackers. And so then mm-hmm. a few other bottlenecks I've run into is, so I get an organic powdered sugar from one of the organic distributors. That price literally went from $55 for a 50 pound bag to 110. So it's like, oh, you know wow. what? I- I'm not really going to use that ingredient. So now I bought a couple bags and I rarely use it. So I got rid of all my plastic packaging. Uh, we, I switched the soups to a reusable jar that I charge a deposit on. Um, there was definitely a bottleneck for glassware. And I was very lucky in that another producer at the farmer's market, uh, this pickle person, Alchemy Pickle, uh, gets in loads, thousands of jars. And so she kept me in jars for a while till the bottleneck opened up. But, you know, to me, that's an example of this whole mutualism thing. Like we're all here to help each other. And being a small producer, I can reach out to a friend and be like, Hey, I need 200 jars. And she's like, sure, no problem. Right. And then the, who we all get our jars from was able to get them, you know, back in, in another month or two. Um, as far as employees, I do hire seasonally. It has been hard to find people. Um, and I now start at $20 an hour. Um, I do look for somebody with a little experience because it really is just me and one or two other people. Uh, so it's been harder. It's more expensive, but also Toronto's expensive. I mean, living wage in Toronto is $24 an hour, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working on next is how do I pay somebody a, a living wage, you know, when I hire them? Um, so I, I don't know. And, you know, rents, Rents are crazy. Uh, Toronto is not very hospitable to to small businesses. How much of the when you when your sugar supplier comes to you and says prices just doubled, how much of that gets translated into your price that you then charge your 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 customers versus how much do you then adapt your your product? 
It's a mix of raising the price and adapting the product. Um, when the dried fruit from California started to really go up and then there were a few little bumps in the supply chain, I just stopped using it. And I got in, I get in cranberries every year anyway. I just got in a lot more and threw them in a chest freezer. Uh, so I use that instead of the dried raisins and currants. Um, and I did raise my prices on some things. Some things I've actually lowered my prices on, um, and some things I've kept the same. Oh, what have you, what have you been able to lower your prices on? On bread. Um, I was charging $12 for a one kilo loaf of spelt bread. I now charge 10. Um, why is that? I just realized bread is something that everybody needs and, Bread is really funny. People think bread should cost $5 and or cheaper, right? And yet I'm giving it one kilo loaf, whereas your usual loaf is only five to 600 grams. So I, I am offering more bread, right? So it's not just that my bread is twice the price. It is actually more bread. Because uh, North Americans don't think in terms of weight. You know, you go to Europe, you can buy bread by the 100 grams, right? You don't, you don't do that here. It's just a loaf. So $12, I think, just seemed people would just sort of balk at the price. And I was like, okay, you know, $10, it works. I still make a profit. The bread is not that hard to make. It's two, it's three ingredients, water, the flour, salt. Um, it's fine because I make more on the sweet things, which people, I mean, people will pay $5 for a sweet item, but then balk at paying $10 for bread that, you know, feeds five people. <laughs> so um, it's fine. So they just pay more for the sweet items. How do you make those decisions to lower or to increase prices? Because you look at the the massive change, right? Who have, you know, consultants and these massive teams working on how to price different things that end up on store shelves. But here, you know, you're dealing with so many inputs and, and you have to come to a price at the end of it for all of your products. I mean, how does the, the, the math on that work out as, as everything is is fluctuating? How are those decisions made? I mean, I look at my month to month, you know, what goes in, what comes out costs. Um, I also get feedback every weekend at the market as to what sells and what doesn't. Um, mm. I also look at what other vendors are charging. I'm not the only baker at the Saturday market. Uh, you know, and at this point, all the bakers at the Saturday market are, we're all using good Ontario grains. And so we should all try to be, I don't want to call it price fixing because we're not getting together and saying, oh, we should all charge $20 for our bread. Um, but we do look at each other like, oh, you're charging 10 for that. You're charging 12 for that. Okay. You know, just bring things sort of more in line. It, it's kind of constant feedback and, and, and constant tweaking. Um, you know, if I were more organized and more bookkeeping oriented, I'm sure my prices might be a little different. Um, but I also just, you know, I want to make people happy and, I want to up my volume of sales. And so if I can hit a certain price point, I'll get more sales. Have you noticed in the last, I don't know, let's say three to six months, as the economy has become a little bit more shaky and prices for everything else have, have started to go up as well more, more quickly, have you noticed a reduced demand amongst your customers for uh, like your higher end products have what's your sense of the general i guess uh, economic vibes 
amongst your customer base? Sure. Uh, my sales have increased by almost 50% at the markets. And I do have some really fairly high-end things. And I will say that if you're shopping at Loblaws or somewhere for vegetables, the farmer's market is now looking like a bargain or is certainly um, competitive now, right? Prices Does that for- compare to... Oh, sorry, Todd. Does oh, no, that it's compare okay. to when you does that compare to when you were uh, wholesaling, or does that uh, compare to when you were when you started selling at the farmers markets? We've been selling at the farmers market the entire time, um, but yeah, I am pretty close to covering making the same amount of money now, even without the crackers, because sales have gone up so much at the market. Um, yeah, and I was just going to say, you know, if you go to Loblaws, you know, you read about when romaine lettuce was whatever dollars ahead. It was three bucks at the farmer's market, right? Because it was grown here. I mean, you can't get romaine lettuce at the farmer's market now, obviously. It's February. But, um, you know, there's been times where, you know, cauliflower was cheaper during the summer than it was at uh, Loblaws. Many things are, are actually cheaper at the farmer's market right now. Well, this is so interesting because there's been so much confusion, right, around the gaps between what food producers' costs are and what's ending up on, you know, store shelves at these like major grocers. And it's interesting talking to you because you're selling right to the to the customer. And so I wonder if you have a perspective on like what gets lost there when we start, you know, involving the big grocers and um what what is the disconnect there when it comes to, you know, what your costs are if you were to be selling to one of the bigger grocers and what a customer actually has to pay for at the end of the day. Sure. If I were to sell to one of the bigger grocers, I myself would have to actually pay for shelf space. Um, and they have, you know, we looked into selling to, I think it was Sobeys that contacted us. This was quite a while ago. And there were so many hurdles to jump through and so many associated costs with packaging and liability and having it sent to the warehouse and on this date and this amount and having to have a certain shelf life. And then you have to pay for the shelf space. I mean, it was nuts. I, I don't. So, and you know, that none of that is going back to any of my suppliers, right? The, the, the ridiculous price they would charge for my products just, it just goes to them, right? It doesn't help the farmer I'm buying from. I actually have to turn around and ask the farmer to be like, Hey, you got to give me a better price because I, mm-hmm. I have to meet this price point. Uh, so there's just many, many hands in the pie when you're looking at a commodity system, whereas I'm trying to keep it as short as possible. So the farmer makes the most money uh, so I can make a living wage. So the person I hire, I can pay 20 bucks an hour, hoping to pay them more this coming year, you know. Um, and so like you're kind of you're paying for what you get. Right. And you can see where the money goes and the money's staying in Ontario. It's not going to a, a multinational. I imagine that would affect ingredients as well down the line with all that pressure to keep everything as cheap as possible. Uh, absolutely. It means you have to buy into the commodity system, right? Where there's somebody's getting exploited somewhere. Uh, when it comes to grain, it's, not so much the um, the workers because so much of it is mechanized, right? Farmers have these satellite-driven GPS tractors to farm their 3,000 acres. Um, but, you know, they're locked into this interdependence with the patented seed companies that come with all the inputs you then have to buy, all that 
you know, fertilizer, pesticide, herbicides, they've all gone up. Um, besides the fact that those are petroleum based and what they're doing. And it means you're, you're, you have to set up this ridiculous monoculture system that's really destroying the soil. Um, it devastated rural communities because these farmers just have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's fewer and fewer farms. Um, and I realize like people can, you know, make fun of my vision. I understand that we're not going to go back to a time of a bunch of small family farms. And there's a reason why people left farms. Um, but there has to be a happy medium somehow because we can't, if we keep relying on these monocultures and these huge systems, we see what happens when there's a break in the chain, right? The price of, of white flour in the grocery store, you know, quadrupled. Um, and that was before the war in Ukraine. Right. And then we saw how much flour went up again with the war in Ukraine, which was really just speculators because it, Ukraine actually supplies, I think, less than 3% of, of global wheat. Right. So that was just a lot of speculators coming in and people just jacking up the price. Um, you know, nothing happened to the Canadian wheat harvest. So like we, we have to shorten our supply chains. So I feel like a lot of people, myself included, we go to the grocery store, we buy our food. I really have no idea where it comes from. I don't really know what's in it. I don't know anything about it, uh, except for the price that I see on the sticker on the shelf. Uh, what does go into, say, a loaf of bread that I would buy for four bucks or five bucks at Metro or Loblaws? Like, what does that supply chain look like at a, sure. at a high level? Uh, so the odds are that the factory is probably somewhere in Ontario, like Western Bread. Uh, so it's a really huge factory with many workers, completely mechanized. The bread is not touched, really touched by human hands. They're getting their flour in literally by the tractor trailer load, and it goes into a silo. Uh, that flour is most likely coming from the prairies, um, and it has gone through uh, a large mill like Archer Daniels Midland. Um, that is getting mill, uh, flour from all over the prairies or from the American Midwest. It all comes in. It gets graded, um, sorted, cleaned, milled. Uh, and not only does it get milled, but then it gets completely sifted. So it's white and it's been stripped of all its nutrients. So then they have to enrich the flour, which is why when you buy white flour, it's enriched. Um, and then that is made into bread that really gets no fermentation. It's going to have a bunch of additives. Uh, the flour itself has a bunch of stuff in it that does not need to be put on the label. Um, then the bread gets made, baked, sliced, bagged, and shipped. And shipped to whatever distributor to go to your various grocery stores. Whereas when you buy my bread, I get the grain in from the farmer. I get it milled by one of my baker friends. I mix it. I shape it. I bake it. I bring it to the market and it's I can tell you where the grain is from it's whole grain I can tell you how the grain was grown I use all different types of grains um you know so it's just it's just a much shorter chain when we have conversations like this it feels like we talk about the food supply chain at a high level but in talking to you it seems like we're talking about two very different supply chains that don't you know really overlap at all. So I'm wondering to your point about, uh, you know, one maybe taking from the other and finding more of a common ground. I mean, where does that overlap happen, if at all? Because it seems so separate at, at this moment. I think 
I don't know where it overlaps. Um, if you want to look at businesses, there are larger bakeries in Toronto who do a nice mix of bringing in commodity grain and using local organic grain. Um, Blackbird is one of them, Blackbird Bakery. They're one of the bigger bakeries. He uses a, a nice amount of local grain that is sourced directly from farmers. And then he has the the backbone is, you know, commodity white flour. Um, but there's actually, there's not an overlap at all. I think there's a whole movement of bakers like myself um, around the world, mostly in Western countries, um, but, you know, in the UK, Australia, across Europe, in the States, um, there's been a whole renaissance of regional grain growing. Um, and it really has nothing to do with the commodity system at all. Like there's grain being grown in the Northeast, right, uh, of, the, of the United States. And people don't think of that as a grain area. Um, so our, our whole goal is to bring back grain growing to where grains are no longer grown, but used to be grown. Everything wasn't so centralized, right? Not er Wheat didn't always come from Kansas or Saskatchewan. Do you have a sense of when that changed? Like, and I guess what precipitated that? That shift, is that like a, a recent thing or how, how long are we talking about? It, it is fairly recent. I've had my business for 15 years. I think I was one of the first bakers in North America to talk about sourcing local grains and, and to have certainly one of the first to have my business only use local grains. Uh, um, and that was just sheer luck that I happened to be in Ontario. And that there were, there was actually local grain to be had. Um, and then I think it's just, it's been a natural offshoot of the local food movement because, you know, you have all these chefs and whoever else talking about, oh, local meat and the whole, you know, the heirloom tomatoes and all these things you can get at the market. And it's like, well, wait, there's always a baker at the market. And we, oh, sorry about that. And we all eat bread. You know, shouldn't the grain be local too? So it, it, it's been simmering and I was just, kind of happened to catch the wave at the right time. Um, but yeah, I would say just it, the past 20 years, 15, 20 years, it's really started mm -hmm. to come. And I would say in the past five, it's really exploded. Um, much more in America than in Canada, but, you know, we're getting there. You know, obviously in the news a lot today are the grocery prices that people are experiencing and how painful that is from a cost of living perspective. Uh, and then a lot of the the local food uh, supply chains that you're talking about also seem to come with a higher cost, like necessarily, if we want to pay people, you know, North American level wages that are, are fair, um, have higher quality products, that sort of thing. Do you see a way of balancing the consumer demand for a product that they can afford and a lower grocery bill generally with the advantages of more local supply chains? That's a really hard question. And, and it's, and suddenly you're, you're, you suddenly get into, you know, talking about elitism and who can afford what and who deserves good food and, and, for sure, farmers markets have been painted as this place of a bunch of elites and not as the answer. And 
I don't think farmers markets are the answer. Um, because there's just, it would just require a lot of farmers markets. And I absolutely understand why people don't have time to come and spend, you know, an hour at the market, uh, nor does the market, the farmers market sell everything, um, that people need. I, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's really hard. It's something I struggle with because I know my product is expensive and therefore my product is not for everyone. But I also feel as a small food producer, it is not my job to make sure I make, you know, a $4 loaf of bread to compete with the Western bread at Loblaws, uh, because that's not fair, right? Because they are relying on so many externalized costs that they themselves don't have to pay, right? So I'm paying my farmer a fair price. He's not giving getting any government subsidies. He doesn't have the crop insurance because he's not in the commodity system. So his costs are more. Um, he's taking, you know, he's getting a handful of seeds from a seed bank instead of buying them from a, a seed company that would only sell him seed every year that he wouldn't be allowed to save. So he's growing his own seed stock. So from that 100 gram sample, it takes him, you know, 10 years to grow out a crop that he can then sell. So, you know, who pays for that? So I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to tell people. Um about how to save money on, on their groceries. And I know, you know, food bank use has gone up and a lot of people, a lot of people in Canada are really suffering from food insecurity. Um, and so I don't know how you fix that, give everyone access to locally grown food, support local suppliers and farmers. Um, I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, it's I mean, there's obviously competing priorities here that uh, I think if it was an easy answer, <laughs> then this probably would be a less interesting conversation. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure but there's so no easy solution to this. But something has to change. If you look at how much topsoil, you know, the Midwest is losing. If you look at all the fertilizer runoff that's ruining the Mississippi Delta and, you know, poisoning the Gulf of Mexico and what that's doing to the shrimp and fish stocks, you know, you look at what's happening in the Chesapeake Bay um, with, again, with all the runoff from the these big uh, industrial cow farms, you know, so, something has to change because there is a cost to this cheaper way of doing business. It just doesn't show up so much on the grocery store shelf, but we're all paying it. All I know is I can only do what I can do and hopefully inspire other people to open similar small businesses and inspire people uh, um, who can afford it, which is, I understand, completely not fair, um, to search out better food and and support people who are trying to make a difference. Well, I think that is a good place to leave it, Don. Thank you so much for, for doing this. That was really Thanks, guys. a fascinating look into uh, a supply chain that I think we often... I don't know, don't even know it really exists. Okay, well, that was a fascinating conversation with uh, with Don and Taylor, wondering if you think about food any differently coming out of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the interesting thing for me was uh, just how many different people go into making a product, like kind of the most simple I, I don't know if i want to say simple but maybe the most uh, ubiquitous food product bread that it, we have like the multiple different 
farmers, people working in agriculture, all of the packaging, all of those different inputs and complexities that go into that supply chain, even at a small scale local level, is it does kind of change the way that I look at a loaf of bread on the shelf. Definitely. Well, it's the difference between like the visual of having, you know, tractor trailers of like flour dumped into the silos that Don was mentioning and then just having like your honey guy on speed dial. It's like two very different processes that we're talking. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does. It feels like two totally separate um, economies. And, and like how she mentioned that there was some producers that do find a way to overlap with each other um, and you know, maybe that could be a picture of what happens next or what we start to see a bit more as, you know, the demand for more locally sourced goods does continue to to pick up as it's seeming to. Yeah. I mean, like Blackbird, the example she gave, I see that everywhere. And that's typically what what I'll buy if I'm in a grocery store, because I think it, yeah, it does hit that like nice sweet spot for me of, you know, being in a grocery store but also not being like Wonder Bread, which is great at times, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but sometimes, you know, you want like something with a little bit more substance to it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the uh, it was really interesting talking at that level of like hyper, hyper local. Um, I think it would also be interesting to explore different scales of that supply chain. Like what is it like in agriculture when you're at, you know, a much larger mass production scale. And do you see some of the same challenges or does it just change entirely? I'm curious about that. Definitely. Me too. It just seems like there's so many extra steps and to kind of dive into what those additional costs are, right. To like get on a shelf at Sobeys, like that's a whole other piece of it that we kind of touched on, but could dive into a lot more. Um, And then the packaging also, the fact that it was, if, it's 25% of her costs for packaging, you know, maybe let's say at scale that comes down a bit to like 15. I don't want to pay 15% of what I pay for something on the shelf for the packaging. It's very frustrating. That's why I'm taking a stand. I know we don't want to get political here, but I'm taking a stand on this. A hundred percent. It makes me think about packaging so much differently. Um, Also looking at the incentives, right, to bring down the cost of ingredients is something that I'm thinking about as well. I think about this graphic that I once saw and and the example in the graphic was like coffee and it was it was and, and hang just stay with me here for this example. But it was talking about like the caffeine content of like a Tim Hortons versus like a Starbucks versus like a second cup. And then when you actually looked at the you the caffeine content of a Starbucks, it was like cheaper than Tim Hortons because it's like and it's just really like the image, mm. right, that a Tim Hortons cup of coffee is, is cheaper. And I was thinking of that as we were kind of talking through as well, because of course there is a point where you can't make the argument that like the nutritional density is valued at, at, at more like Canadians are, are really struggling right now. But when you, you know, when, when you look at just the, the gap between the nutritional contents between like a wonder bread and, you know, one of, one of the Evelyn's cracker loaves, I mean, I wonder if those same types of dynamics play out as like, oh, well, this, you know, this bread is twice as expensive, but it might be, you know, more than two times more nutritionally dense. And if there's, you know, something to be said there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is, but that's such a difficult calculation to do 
yourself as a shopper at the grocery store when I have like 25 <laughs> items to buy. You can't become like intimately familiar with the ingredients and supply chains of every single one. So often, at least for me, I just end up buying whatever is cheapest. And, you know, obviously there's that has that is maybe not the optimal thing if you're going for like the most nutritious option. Yeah. Well, we'll get someone from the other side of things to maybe explain how that all works for us as well. And then and then we can compare what's happening. Yeah. Your example about coffee also has me wondering if coffee is now so expensive, like at a coffee shop because of the packaging, like have the cups for coffee at a coffee shop also gone way up in price, I wonder. I'm going to be thinking about this for Ever. I don't think it's like, it, yeah, just going up, going into the going into the coffee shop and just wondering, that's like, how much of this is the coffee and yeah. how much of we this is the paper cup? We might have to have like cup. a cafe owner on to talk about their supply chain as well, because now I'm wondering <laughs> about that. We're going to get to the bottom of packaging on free lunch and we're going to figure out what's going on here <laughs> and we're going to get answers. <laughs> okay. Well, is that a good place to leave it? I think so. All right, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our daily business newsletter as well, The Peak. You can find that at readthepeak.com. And if you want more episodes, search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.